Hey readers, today we're taking it back to episode 26, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This well-known classic has been adapted into film, referenced in countless works of literature, and is now in the public domain, which means a whole host of Gatsby retellings are coming our way. Before we dive into our discussion of one of those retellings, The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nivo, we're revisiting this past episode to freshen our memories on the plot, characters, and themes of Fitzgerald's iconic work. You don't need to have recently read Gatsby to listen to this episode. We hope it enhances your experience with Nevo's adaptation and provides you with context for any other Jazz Age novels you might pick up this season. podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. I cannot wait to talk about The Great Gatsby with you today. I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but we won't tell listeners what time it is, but I had a cocktail pre-recording and I just feel (laughs) in the Gatsby mood and so excited to get into it. I know I'm wishing that I popped some champagne or something or I don't know. I feel like we should have some jazz music in the background. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, of course, we'll get into this. It's not as glitzy of a book as we all want it to be, but it still calls for some champagne or something bubbly. Yeah, we'll get into it. I, I'm i inclined to jump in right away with, like, this book is actually depressing, but we all think that it's this romantic and super glamorous novel, but we will Spoiler alert. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Okay, Sarah, I feel like we should just get right into this. I think that listeners will be curious because this book, we sort of pitched it as the book that everyone read in high school. So we did both read it in high school and you have taught it. So I would love to hear about your previous experience with The Great Gatsby. Yeah, I read it, I think, junior year of high school. I actually don't really have many memories of reading this book in class or discussing it or what we talked about or anything, really. So it wasn't a book that stuck with me. It wasn't a favorite. It wasn't something I hated. I just know it was part of my curriculum. And then, yeah, I've taught it for, I don't know, five or six years with two to four sections of classes reading it each year. And so I've talked about The Great Gatsby a lot. I feel like I could do it in my sleep. I didn't reread it for our conversation today. (laughs) But I do have my trusty teaching copy here with me with tons of tabs, reading questions dispersed throughout, you know, all that teachery stuff that I can look to as we as we chat. But yeah, this <laughs> book has been in my life for many years. It takes up a lot of my brain space. So when you go to teach The Great Gatsby, was this a book that you really looked forward to? 
Were you excited for the unit? Or was it one of the books that you were like, this is in the curriculum every year, at least I know how to teach the heck out of it? (laughs) So I have a complicated answer to that. I love teaching this book. It's easy to teach. We'll talk more about that. And it's one of those books, I mean, I would always say this to my students, and it's true, like, I would love to read the entire book aloud to them and just stop after each paragraph and discuss. Like, there's just so much there to talk about, and the writing is, honestly, it's not my favorite writing, but it's sparkly and very layered, so there's lots to dig into. So in that sense, yeah, I looked forward to the unit every year. But literally every year, I said to my colleagues, maybe we should take out Gatsby. Like, (laughs) I also was fighting to get rid of it. And this is something I think if you're not a teacher, you, you don't really think about, that selecting books for a curriculum is a zero-sum game. It's not like being a reader where you can read Gatsby and you can read a bunch of great diverse fiction that challenges the constructs that are in Gatsby. When you teach a book, it takes like six weeks. And That means that you're limited to the number of books you choose each year. Maybe six novels. You can bring in some choice, but if you're really doing full class text, I would say six novels is the most you can really get to. At least that's how it was on my school schedule. So I never felt like this was one of the books, if I was just going to choose six, that it would be on the list. So that's my complicated answer. I looked forward to teaching it. I love doing it. I always fought to get it out of the curriculum and something new in its place. I read this my sophomore year of high school. And I think, I mean, I, like you, I don't really remember anything about reading it back then. I do know that I really didn't like my teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A sophomore year, I was bored out of my mind in English class. I didn't read any of the books because I didn't have to. in order to get an A. Yep. Yep. The sign <laughs> of I, a true English scholar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was just so bored and I checked out a lot in English class that year. And so I don't remember how much of Gatsby I actually mm. read. I mean, it was familiar to me on this rereading, but I did keep my high school copy. This you I'm holding it up so you can see Yeah, it's the shiny high <laughs> uh-huh. school binding and it has a number on the side and it has the stamp from my high school. Oh my gosh. So apparently it left enough of an impression on me that I kept it. Yeah. But on my reread, I have to say I was just kind of like, eh, I can see why it gets its acclaim. And I think that there are better novels out there. Like, I've read better great American novels since reading Gatsby in high school. So it didn't have that wow factor for me that I think that it it gets in a lot of literary circles. But I am curious, because I've never taught it. I just remember reading it in high school. And I remember it being discussable. I think that other kids, like, we got into it in some way. But I'm curious to hear how your students responded to it. I obviously can only speak from my own experience. I taught at an all-girls school. 
I don't know if that has something to do with this, but many of my students came into the class really excited to read Gatsby. They've been to great Gatsby-themed parties. They've maybe seen the movie. They see, like, 1920s just feels glitzy to them, and they're eager to read it. So this is a book that I rarely had trouble getting kids to read, which is, you know, saying a lot. (laughs) And honestly, what I enjoyed as a teacher, and I don't mean this to sound mean, but this is a book that's fun to teach because it's fun to ruin it for them. Like they come in thinking it's this love story, it's glitzy, it's glamorous. Gatsby is this swoon-worthy hero. His and Daisy's love story is timeless. And it's fun to teach because it's fun to look at the text and see, okay, how did people get that reading? It's, it's available to them. But what is Fitzgerald really doing? What is he really saying about this character? What is he really saying about this time period? And that takes a more careful reading. And so they ended up having like a love-hate relationship with it, I think. You bring up a really good point. And our first discussion topic here is whether or not we actually find this story romantic. And it sounds like your opinion's pretty clear here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so one of the things I loved to do in my classroom was talk about Gatsby and how in love he is with Daisy. And we would talk about, I would kind of let them gush over, oh my gosh, he's been waiting for her for so long and he bought this house to see her. And, you know, we would just swoon over it. And then I would ask them, okay, now what would you think if this was gender swapped? What if a woman spent 10 years pining after a man who had married another woman and then she bought the house next door to his and she watched him all the time and just waited for her moment what would we think of it then and of course their response would always be oh that's so creepy it's like well okay let's talk a little bit about gender expectations in heteronormative relationships and how we're feeding into them with this book So, no, I don't think it's romantic. (laughs) I love that spin. I also just really find both Gatsby and Daisy, but especially Daisy, to be insufferable. (laughs) And I, I am a romance reader. I love romance novels. And I'm talking, like, true happily ever after romance genre mass market paperback with the Bodice Ripper cover. So this definitely does not fit that. But I I love having a couple that you can root for, and that is a significant part of the romance. And for it to be a romance story, the romance should be the center of the novel, and it's really not. I mean, they don't even come together or see each other for, like, half the book, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think a big part of why I don't find it romantic is that I – I completely dislike all of the characters in this book. Oh, totally. Yeah, I... Oh, you've said so many things that I want to comment on. (laughs) So (laughs) you're totally right that the romance isn't the center of this. It's 
interesting. And one of the things I kind of love is the moments that Fitzgerald doesn't show us because it's through Nick's perspective. So we only know what Nick knows. And so we see Gatsby and Daisy reunite at Nick's house, but then Nick leaves and we don't actually see what happened. We don't hear the conversation. We don't know how it went. It's up to the reader to kind of fill that in. And so, yeah, we're, I mean, Fitzgerald is not even offering us romantic moments when they're available. I also think there's so much metaphor in this book. And it's hard to find the story romantic when everything is just representing something else, when it's basically everything is just a symbol. Especially and the women. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think it's hard to read it as a romantic love story when it's not operating that way at all. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's very true. And you're you're so right that much of it is symbolic or allegorical. And also the characters, when they are characters, are quite unlikable. And I enjoy a a good unlikable character, but that doesn't lead to a good romance book or romantic book. I can deal with a book with unlikable characters if there is something slightly redeeming about them or if they are just so compelling. But I didn't really find that in this book upon a reread. I do think I prefer when there is a character that I can root for. I have learned that about myself. But... Yeah, do we want to just talk about the characters a little bit and why we find them so reprehensible? I mean, there's bad stuff going on here. Yes, let's do it. And I also, I just have to say before we do that, that I love that you are resisting the idea that these characters are redeemable, even though Nick, as a narrator in the last chapter, is like, Gatsby was okay in the end. (laughs) (laughs) It's like there <laughs> he's trying to instruct you to find Gatsby redeemable and you as a reader were like, nope, no thanks. <laughs> no. I had made up my mind. Nick <laughs> Nick of all people was not going to change it. Oh my gosh. Nick is a fascinating narrator. So let's save him for last, actually. That sounds good. Okay. So we have our title character, the great Gatsby. What did you think of Gatsby himself? I mean, I I can see why he is a compelling, he's an iconic figure. I can see why when we consider American culture and what we prize in American society. He kind of follows this rags to riches story, but not really. Like he kind of hints that maybe he did start with some money. His past is a little murky and we know he did some shady things in order to get his wealth, but now he is super wealthy And he, of course, represents the American dream. So it's hard to separate him from that. Totally. And I can see why he is iconic. But I I just really have a hard time seeing him as a real person beyond that. Yeah, I think there are a couple of moments for me that flesh him out a little bit more and maybe make me feel something for him. The one that... I always think about is when Tom comes by the house, Gatsby's house, and he is chatting with Gatsby a little bit. And then he's like, 
oh, my friend and I are going to get lunch. And Gatsby's like, oh, I'll join you. Just let me go get changed. And he goes to get changed. And by the time he gets back, Tom and his buddy have left because they don't really want to have lunch with Gatsby. And there's this moment of empathy, I think, for him there that, and of course, this goes along with the symbolism, like Gatsby is new money. No matter that he's achieved the American dream, he's never going to fit in with this elite society. And that moment is intended to show us that, but I do think it's one of the humanizing moments for Gatsby. I like him a lot better before he shows up. (laughs) I like the mystery surrounding him. I like that everybody whispers about his identity and that he throws these lavish parties and doesn't show up. And I love the moment when everyone's talking about him and he's there because Mm -hmm. nobody's really seen him or identified him to know that he's actually amongst them. Yep. And I mean, I really like those moments. But then this might be digging deeper than we mean to go right here. But I think that maybe if I had read this in college again, or even five years ago instead of today, I might be able to access Gatsby's humanity a little bit better. But I struggle to see him as the underdog when he is this wealthy white man. Totally. And this book is trying to suggest that he is the outsider. Yes. Through a 2020 lens, that just does not work. And I really, I struggled to get past that at all. And, I, you know, that's fine. I don't have to get past that. That's my 2020 reading. Um, but I think that's a big reason why I just could never connect with him as I was reading this book. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. And I think that that is an important question to ask, like, why is Fitzgerald trying to make me feel sympathetic towards Gatsby? What were his biases, which are very clear in the novel? And kind of working on, okay, it's one thing for the writer to present a scene in a way where I can empathize with the humiliation or embarrassment that a character is feeling, and then take the next step of like, Okay, but look, let's look at this in the entire context of not just this work of literature, but the lens I'm reading through and the world I'm living in. Gatsby is not an underdog. Mm-hmm. So since we were talking a little bit about biases and um, Fitzgerald sort of revealing some of his views about the world, I think it would make sense to talk about Tom before we even get to Daisy. Because Tom is, he is presented as the villain, but he's just god-awful. He's terrible. Yeah, Tom is the worst. And we know that immediately, the way his body is described as being a violent body, we know immediately this is not somebody we are supposed to like or connect with. And very early on, I I think one of the first scenes we get with Tom, he is going on this racist tirade. And that always is a complicated scene to teach and talk about because 
it's clear that because Fitzgerald gives those views to Tom, who's the most detestable character in the book, that Fitzgerald finds those views detestable. However, he still includes that racist tirade in a book that then goes on to not include any characters of color that have names. I was curious to hear about your experience with that in the classroom because it's it's not something that I remember my teacher ever going over at all. I think it was just, you know, barely glanced at. And uh, yeah, it would be complicated. And it's it's the kind of passage that has to be brought up in the classroom. Yeah, it's it like you said, it is clear that Fitzgerald is placing these views in the bad box. Like these are the, these are bad views, but they're still there and it gets brought up multiple times throughout the novel. It's not like it's just one rant and that's it. Um and Fitzgerald writes about some other ethnic groups with terrible racist overtones. So it's not like he's just exempt from that either. Yes, I think it is far too easy, and I'm sure this happens a lot in classrooms. It's the same thing with a book like Huck Finn, where you can point to, see, this is the evil character, and the author says that the evil character is racist, so the author must not have those racist views. That is completely, it's definitely a fallacy, and it's very much an oversimplification. You're right, the the one Jewish character in this book is presented with horrific racial undertones, overtones even, and yeah. Fitzgerald shouldn't get a pass <laughs> by any means. Yeah, and I was reading Maureen Corrigan's book, So We Read On. It's her literary criticism book about The Great Gatsby. And I did not read this thoroughly, so that's a disclaimer, but there's one page where she says something about Gatsby being about class or it foregrounds class instead of race. And I just don't think that's true. Yeah. Because when you're writing about a bunch of white people, you're also writing about whiteness and the the rants and the racial tones or racial racist overtones in this book, I should say. Are, are really obvious. Yes. So Maureen Corrigan teaches at Georgetown. So I've actually gotten to talk with her about The Great Gatsby when I was in grad school. And she has a very reverent attitude towards it. To her, it is the great American novel. And So We Read On is delightful. Every Fitzgerald lover should pick it up, but it is very skewed and biased. She loves New York novels more than anything, and so this is the, maybe this is not the great American novel. Maybe she thinks of it as the great New York novel. I don't know. I mean, that, of course, even has issues. But yeah, I think what you say is often how Gatsby is taught, and it's extremely problematic. If we only talk about race when we read books by non-white authors and we pretend that books by white authors don't address race or are like absent of race, we're doing a huge disservice to the books and to our students. And I think that's an important thing for 
readers to think about outside of the classroom too is that if a book is only about white people, it's still about race. And I I don't think that we can use the excuse of, well, it, this was just the common idea in the author's time, or this was the common viewpoint. Often, the common viewpoint that we're referencing is from a white point of view, first of all. And second, we know better now. We can analyze these books and we can understand the context, but we can absolutely bring our modern lens without ruining every part of the book. I still think, I mean, I know I've I've really been shitting on this book so far this episode. <laughs> I, I don't like it. I'm just going to say it. I, I did not enjoy The Great Gatsby. But did I still bookmark some pages that I thought were stunning and beautiful? Do I still think Fitzgerald was a great writer of his time? Sure, I do. It doesn't exclude all of this criticism. So I think we can hold both. Yes, we can totally hold both. Both are essential. I also think it's interesting. This book was not a bestseller when it came out. I forget what his first novel was, maybe The Beautiful and the Damned or Tender as the Night, but it was a, that, whichever one it was, was a huge hit. And then he put out The Great Gatsby and people were like, this book sucks. This is, Fitzgerald did not live up to his promise. And it didn't sell any copies. They printed way too many copies and I'm getting my dates wrong. Dates are hard for me, but it was either World War One or World War Two when publishers started sending books to the troops and just like extra books that they had around that weren't being sold and yeah, so they that sent were cheap yeah that were cheap and they sent copies of the great gatsby and that's how it became this hit so it's funny to me i mean i think we usually say that as like a oh wow like even the most genius of people's works can be ignored. But another way to read that is maybe this book isn't that good in the first place. Yeah, I would argue from my standpoint that there are much better books that we could be teaching in place of this one. Yes, I think we're all over the place. We'll get back to our characters. (laughs) I do think one of the reasons I think this gets taught is it's easily agreed upon by faculty. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Everybody's read it. Most people know how to teach it, feel confident with it. It's also like, I think of it as like my first grown-up novel. You teach kids some symbolism or some things to look for, like different light motifs, like Daisy's voice or different colors, and then they can read it and offer a really, I don't know, it's not usually insightful or unique, but they can offer like a specific theoretical reading of the book based on what they pick up from symbolism and colors and imagery and all of that. So it it serves, to me, that's the real reason it's taught. It's not that the story is great, not that it says anything about, or it does say something about the American dream, but not that it's the defining book of it. It's that it's a good level stepping stone to get kids to do that kind of analysis. Yeah, I totally agree. And we will come back to this conversation a little bit, I'm (laughs) sure. But let's go ahead and talk about Daisy. Yes. Because I think I think that people are probably waiting for us to talk about Daisy (laughs) and her relationship with Gatsby. So Daisy Buchanan, she and Gatsby had a young love affair. And 
I would argue it left much more of an impression on him than perhaps it did her. And then she ended up marrying Tom. And she seems very flighty. I think the way that she's written Fitzgerald presents her a bit ditzy, I think. But, you know, there's there's a little bit more to her than that. She is also a mother, though that <laughs> does not feature, feature prominently in this book at all. It's like every now and then she waves, hi, darling, and then her little girl, like, is gone again. Pammy. <laughs> yeah, I think we get her name once in the book. <laughs> yeah, what do, you, what do you think of Daisy? I think... Daisy is the product of a misogynistic writer. I mean, yeah, I don't I don't like her, but I fault Fitzgerald for that. I think he had some issues with women and they come out in his characterization of Daisy and her flightiness and her ditziness and her fickleness about who she's really in love with and it's just so hard to know who she's in love with and all of that yeah I I think I think the best line surrounding Daisy is the one that's often quoted about when Daisy says that the best thing a girl can be in the world is a beautiful fool which Fitzgerald stole from his wife's journal Zelda wrote that Hmm. yeah so (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that's my she's an interesting character to analyze through a feminist lens, which is, you know, another reason this book works well in the classroom. But yeah, I I would rather have kids read a book with a strong empowering female heroine. Mhm. So our first episode was about Emma, and I think that Emma gets a really bad reputation for being spoiled and insufferable and to those who can't stand emma i would like to offer up daisy as an alternative (laughs) character to hate (laughs) oh my gosh i had a delightful student in my class named daisy a few years back and she was so excited to read this book because her parents named her daisy because of this book and then she was like you guys daisy is the literal worst how could you name me after her Talk about ruining the book for a student. I know, I know. I felt a little bad. But uh, I mean, you know, she was Daisy delightful. Daisy is still a precious name. It's a great name. It's a great name. But again, like, even the names are, like, mm-hmm. so hit you over the head, symbolic. Like, you know, a gold center and a white exterior. Mm-hmm. It's like she appears pure, but she's really corrupt by money on the inside. And I mean, again, like, there's fun in that. It's like a puzzle mm-hmm. to read. Another passage from Corrigan's book that stood out to me was where she says that basically like this book is really easy to break down into those parts and to read it for its symbolism and all of those things. And then she goes, but it's so much more than that. And I was like, really? Is it though? Is it? Yeah, it's not to me. (laughs) Not Yeah, me neither. (laughs) I mean, there are other like sentences that I'm like, oh, wow, Mm -hmm. this guy can write a sentence. Yeah. Um. Beyond that, no. And, okay, so I, this is another side rant. I promise <laughs> we'll talk about Nick, everyone. We'll get there. But I just I just feel like this is held up as the great American novel, but I just don't love it as, as an enjoyable reading experience or as a novel. And I'm not saying you have to enjoy every 
great American novel. Like, I don't know if I would say I enjoyed reading Beloved in the same way that, you know, it's like, it's not a an easy breezy, oh, I loved reading that kind of read, but it felt, it felt like there was a great payoff. I didn't feel the same payoff with this book. I completely agree. I mean, in whichever episode our beloved episode was, we crowned it the Great American Novel. And yeah, I mean, I I think, again, like, it does everything Gatsby does and way more and way better. Gatsby, it's not as complicated as I want it to be for it to be hailed the Great American Novel, but it's also not as enjoyable of a read as I would want it to be to be in whatever other category that is. Mm-hmm. Although many people find it enjoyable, we know. Yeah. It's the kind of book that makes me glad that I was a reader before I got to sophomore English, because books like these, I think, can really easily ruin the reading life for teens when they see, like, this is what is the great American novel. What else is there? You know, what else is there for me to read that I would actually enjoy? And so um, it, it, it just feels very much like I cannot remove this book from school in my head, totally. which is okay. What, right. I mean, and that that's why we picked it to do is yeah. this is the book people think about when they think about high school English. I mean, I even think that as great as this book is for unlocking symbolism and analysis, that's another thing that kills the joy of reading. Mm-hmm. Kids are like, is this how I have to read every single book? And I don't believe you that the author intended to do this. And why should I have to think about, you know, why he chose the name Daisy to understand the meaning of this book? Like that can kill the joy of reading as well. Okay. I have had a lot of fun picking this apart so far, though. Yeah, me I too. Will say. <laughs> it's fun to talk about. Yeah. Let's talk about Nick because I have so many thoughts <laughs> about him, but I'm Tell curious. Me. Oh, you want me to start? or do I, you Yeah, because I don't know that I have as much to share about him. Well, first of all, I think that Nick is a completely unreliable narrator. That's not a hot take. It's like, you know, in the first few paragraphs, he says that his dad taught him never to judge somebody. And then the next paragraph, he starts judging people. So you know immediately Mm -hmm. this guy is not someone I can rely on to be truthful with me. And I find that compelling. Like, I love an unreliable narrator when done well. Like, I hate when an author just withholds information from a reader when it doesn't make sense. But I think Fitzgerald does the unreliable narrator well. Like, it makes sense to me. Nick has, like, good guy syndrome where he just thinks he's such a good guy that he sees the world in this really skewed way that puts him at the moral center of it. I also think he's in love with Gatsby. I mean, I think that's, like, the best way to read this book is that what whatever that means, like, like we said, this book is extremely symbolic. And so... I don't know if I can suggest that Fitzgerald had in mind Nick being really romantically in love with Gatsby, but it's clear that he's obsessed with Gatsby, whether that's Gatsby as a person or Gatsby as the embodiment of the American dream is kind of up to the reader. But that, I think, unlocks a lot of the book and makes it more interesting to read, for me at least. That's a good point. 
So I agree that the unreliable narrator aspect of Nick is interesting. I I just don't really enjoy his voice. Uh, he's really removed and observant. Mm-hmm. And I he was just... within and without. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't enjoy that yeah. for the reading experience. Yeah. And I. I just, as I was reading this, I had a really hard time imagining getting it as a teen Mm -hmm. and enjoying, like, wanting to read on. Like, there are a couple books that I can remember that I was excited to read the whole book. Not very many of them. (laughs) Yeah. But surely this wasn't one of them because it's kind of hard to get through. Yeah. Even though it's short. It's... Yeah. I mean... It's dense. It's dense and... Yeah, the plot does not, I mean, until it does move, the plot is pretty slow. And and the writing is flowery. Like, this is, Mm -hmm. when people say they hate flowery writing, this is probably the root of that for a lot of people. Like, it's, if you like that kind of lush, extravagant imagery, then you will like this book. But, yeah, it is, it's tough to get through. I almost wonder if... Fitzgeralds would have written it in a different point of view if I would like it better Hmm. because sometimes it seems like those passages that are really stunning are just in Fitzgerald's own voice and then when he's trying to write in the voice of Nick I'm bored yeah that's fair I mean I think analyzing Nick's narration and his views of Gatsby and his potential his certain obsession with Gatsby is one of the most fun parts of breaking this book apart. But I think I agree that his narration isn't particularly enjoyable. I think that's all I have to say about Nick. I feel like I kind of hate how this book ends with like Nick saying, Mm. here are all the morals. Um, But I also think it's, important that he remains unreliable and that the morals of the story as Nick tells them are not necessarily the morals that we should take away or the observations that Fitzgerald is trying to make like I think it's kind of hilarious that like Nick's ultimate lesson is like the east coast corrupts midwesterners like we were all (laughs) hardy midwestern stock and then we moved east and it just ruined us it's like okay that is not what i took away from this book but you do you buddy (laughs) uh should we should we read the last famous couple of lines sure okay since we're talking about the ending And we still haven't even spoiled anything yet. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and then one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. So... I know that the last line is the famous one, right? mm-hmm. and of course it is. It's beautifully written and symbolic, and we try to move forward, but we're pulled back. But I think that the most important part of what you read is the ellipses. Mm-hmm. The, you know, we run faster, we work harder, whatever. We do more, 
dot, dot, dot. That to me is what this book is about. The dot, dot, dot of like, it's never enough. It's all impossible. It's all without of our reach forevermore. And I, I find that compelling. I just also think like the, the meaning of this book is in all of the dot, dot, dots. And they're literally like there are lots throughout the book where Fitzgerald leaves things up to your imagination and figuratively like what what's unsaid in this book is what's important, which is why I hate more than anything the Baz Luhrmann version of this story. Ooh. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that right away? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay, let's get into it. I think that the Lorman version of The Great Gatsby, even though it has fantastic casting, I will give him that, makes obvious all of the things that are under the surface of this novel. And that this novel is only good in the sense to me that you read it and it says one thing on the surface and the what it's really communicating is you know hidden in this puzzle that is fairly easy to unlock but fun to unlock and Lerman just puts it all out there like when he has you know zooms over the eyes of Dr. TJ Eckelberg looking over Queens he says you know they loomed over the city like the eyes of God There's no like the eyes of God in the book. You are supposed to, as a reader, figure that out. And Lorman's just like, here it is. I hate it. I hate it so much. And I'm not even that attached to this book. I just think the adaptation is that bad. Do you prefer the 1970s Robert Redford version? Or do you just think this book shouldn't be a movie anyway? That's a good question. I have watched the 1970s one and definitely showed a lot of clips of both in my classroom. Of course, you've got to win them over with Leonardo DiCaprio. Of course. Of course. And he is the perfect Gatsby. He is the perfect Gatsby. I just wish he were in the hands of a better... And, oh, Carrie Mulligan would have been a great Daisy, Mm -hmm. but somehow the film manages to make her even more insufferable than she is in the book. But... I, li- I do like, I like Mia Farrow. I like Robert Redford, of course. I love, oh, Sam Waterston, I think actually makes Nick likable, which is great. Probably just because I knew him from Law & Order before I ever watched that movie. <laughs> but I do think that any book that relies on an unreliable narrator, a first-person point of view to kind of make the story compelling and interesting is really hard to translate to film. So I understand why we want to keep making versions of this movie because it has fantastic cinematic scenes. Like who, what director wouldn't want to direct one of Gatsby's parties and make it happen on the screen? I just think it will always fall flat. I think that that brings us to a good point about how I think that the way that this book lives on in pop culture and in our general consciousness after we leave high school and have read it or skimmed it or maybe just glanced at spark notes <laughs> is that the only thing that really stays is the party scene stuff the stuff that was it that would have been exciting um and the glitz and glamour of the jazz age i mean that's a that's a really appealing time period in general but I, I just think that so often that, like you said, 
people go to Gatsby-themed parties, and it's just exciting to dress up as flappers and drink. And they have a 1920s-themed prom night, and it on and on. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's sort of the way that this lives on. I don't think I have an opinion about that. I don't think that, you know, it's a shame that people don't carry around the deep themes of this book with them forevermore. But I do think that the way that this book lives on in that sort of like exciting and vibrant way is part of why we just can't get it out of the curriculum. (laughs) Totally. And also, I just think that there are far more interesting stories to tell about the American dream now. Or that were already written. We've already brought up passing as Mm -hmm. an incredible alternative to this book. And I, especially after rereading Gatsby, I very much stand by that suggestion. Oh, totally. Yeah, I I completely agree. And they are two books that could easily be paired in the classroom. But like we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, time is limited. And if you can only do one, I would always choose passing. All right, Chelsea, should we get into some of those other books that might present the American dream better? Absolutely. I I would love to talk about these pairings. I'm really excited about them. Me too. Okay, Sarah, why don't you go first and share your first pairing for Gatsby with us? All right, so I wanted to offer kind of a balance. So I have one sort of fun one and then two that I think are representations of the American dream. So my first pairing is the more fun one, the lighter one, and it is The Other Typist by Suzanne Rindell. And I think maybe I've mentioned this kind of offhand. I definitely mentioned it in our passing episode. It came out in 2014, and I read it before like Bookstagram dominated my reading life. So I have zero conception of whether this book was a hit or whether it's completely under the radar. (laughs) No clue. But I loved it. And I think a lot of readers would if they happened to miss this. So I am selling it as Gone Girl meets The Great Gatsby. And it, it truly is. So the main character is Rose. And Rose is a typist at a police precinct. It's set in 1920s New York. And so she's the only woman in the precinct. She works there as a typist who mostly writes up people's confessions. So once somebody has decided that they're going to plead guilty, she sits down with them, they confess their crimes, and she types them up. And she is a total snob and completely judgmental of everyone's crimes. She's very prudish and doesn't drink, and so she she kind of is high and mighty about that. She doesn't have much of a social life, but she feels a lot of pride about her job, especially since she's the only woman in her office, until Odalie shows up. And Odalie is this wealthy, so unclear why she decided to take this job, just for fun, I guess, glamorous woman who is hired as a second typist for the precinct. And Rose and Odalie start spending a lot of time together. Odalie starts taking Rose to parties, and Rose becomes very obsessed with this glamorous lifestyle that she was previously judgmental about, 
and she becomes very obsessed with Odalie herself. So, of course, both Odalie and Rose have really intense secrets in their pasts, and as they start becoming closer and closer to each other, and the tension in the novel starts building up, those secrets start to come out, and the book becomes kind of trippy in terms of those secrets being revealed. Definitely pick this up with a friend because you are going to need to discuss the ending. You are going to finish this book and like immediately have questions that you need to talk with another reader about. So that is my biggest recommendation for this. I think it ties so well with The Great Gatsby, both because of the setting, but also just that intoxicating friendship and how we perceive people who we admire and maybe only see the best in them and miss a lot. Um, It's so fun. That is The Other Typist by Suzanne Rindell. I think I need to read it. You need to read it. Yeah. And then (laughs) you need to talk to me about the ending because I read it all by myself and (laughs) I still haven't had a conversation about the ending with anyone. So please do. Maybe we'll have to do a little bonus episode on that one. Oh, that would be so fun. Yeah. I think a lot of people would enjoy picking that up. All right, what is your first pairing? I have a romance for us. I wanted to offer an alternative for people who pick up The Great Gatsby wanting a romance, wanting a glamorous romance. And so I have a novella to recommend by Alyssa Cole, who is maybe my favorite romance author. And the title is Let Us Dream. And it is about a suffragette who is also a cabaret owner. Bertha Hines attempts to run her New York nightclub during Prohibition in 1917. So this is a little bit pre-1920s jazz age, but it feels like a really similar setting to The Great Gatsby. And part of what I love is that she runs this club at night and during the day she has lectures and brings a bunch of women in to teach them about why it's important to fight for the right to vote, to talk about things like um, what is important to them and how voting and how public policy could help them in their lives. And I, I really loved that political aspect to this book. I found this to be much more of a realistic, grounded read than Gatsby in terms of there's glamour and nightlife, there is there are deep themes and there's stuff that is difficult that the characters go through and there are difficult things to grapple with, but just the best way I can say it is it feels more grounded. Alyssa Cole is an expert at weaving historical context into her romances so that it feels like you're learning, but not not in a dull way at all. It's She's not hitting you over the head with these historical facts. It's just perfectly woven into her stories. So Bertha, the heroine here, has a great backstory. It follows the sort of trajectory of Gatsby in that she started with nothing. She had to do some not quite legal things to get where she is, but she's not nearly as wealthy as Gatsby. And a new cook walks into her club. Amir is a chef 
and he is an immigrant. And they don't hit it off at the start. I should also say that Bertha is a black woman and her identity is really important to the story here too. Um, She and Amir don't hit it off at the start of the novella, but Amir ends up giving Bertha dance lessons and the way that that comes about is really fun. And they fall in love because it's a romance. And <laughs> because this is 1917 and they're an interracial couple, there is that forbidden romance element to it. And the way that they navigate their relationship feels true to the time, but also really modern. And the theme of the American dream and who gets to achieve it runs prominently through this novella. It's called Let Us Dream. It's about the American (laughs) dream. And both Bertha and Amir navigate their places in society and their privileges in relation to one another. Amir has to recognize that as a man, he holds a different power dynamic than Bertha, but she recognizes that as an American citizen, she also has these different privileges. The way that they navigate their identities individually and together is just incredibly deftly written by Alyssa Cole. And this story just really lines up with Gatsby Well thematically. And it is a true romance. It has respect and consent on the page, swoon-worthy moments that I feel like are missing from Gatsby. So that is Let Us Dream by Alyssa Cole. I have yet to read Alyssa Cole, and she is an author I know I need to get to. I will say this is also very open door, super steamy. Okay. People should know that before going into it. (laughs) I find I like a romance novella, so maybe I will pick this one up soon. Yeah, you could read it in a couple of hours. I love that it is quick, but there's so much to stop and think about with Alyssa Cole's writing. All right. My next pairing is definitely one of the books I think of as modernizing the American dream narrative and exploring the intersections of race and class in a way that Gatsby avoids. Um, And it is The Affairs of the Falcons by Melissa Rivero. And this book came out last year. It was a... It was longlisted for the Aspen Words Prize, and that's how I came across it. It takes place in New York City in the 1990s. All of my books take place in New York, which is fun, Um, but very different aspects of New York. So this one, New York in the 1990s, and it is about Anna Falcone. She's a young mother whose family immigrated from Peru to escape economic and political turmoil, and the Falcones are undocumented. They live in the spare room of a relative. I think it's her husband's cousin. And this woman has made it very clear that they're not welcome. And also that she does not think that Anna is good enough for her family, to be part of her family. And I learned a lot about kind of race and class in Peru as well as I was reading this, which I I thought was really well done. So Anna and her husband Lucho both have steady jobs, but they aren't high enough paying to move into a place of their own. And so Anna becomes indebted to this loan shark who's known in the immigrant community as Mama. So it's kind of this this woman figure who 
acts very caring at first until, you know, she has people's trust and then completely takes advantage of them. And the book revolves around Anna's choices as kind of the pressure and intensity builds between like the demands of her family, the fact that her husband wants to return to Peru, that her husband's cousin wants to kick them out of this apartment, and the fact that they're undocumented, of course, has this level of intensity hanging over the entire book. And I thought this book was so well done. I mean, Rivero just like ratchets up the intensity and tension. And there's the sense of urgency that builds as the novel goes on. And I I will warn listeners, like this book is sad. It is a hard read and it is sad. It's not particularly hopeful, although I think the way it depicts family and motherhood is really beautiful. I actually almost paired it with Beloved because of that, that like beauty of motherhood and sacrifice around motherhood while also exploring these larger social issues. But it also pairs really well with Gatsby because of how it depicts the American dream and examines class stratifications that are both like obvious ones that that would be easy for kind of any American to to notice and more subtle ones that are maybe more known to a specific community. So I thought this one was excellent. It is intense. I loved it on audio. The narrator does a great job of really making you feel that sense of urgency. So that is The Affairs of the Falcons by Melissa Rivero. The next book that I would like to recommend is similarly intense and sometimes sad. I think that this could definitely count as a co-recommendation totally for both of us. And it pairs really well with the affairs of the Falcons. It does. This is The Undocumented Americans by Carla Corneo Villavincencio. And I think that this book belongs at the top of any canon or course list that revolves around the American dream or what it means to be an American and what it means to climb the ladder in this country and who we deem worthy of even getting near the ladder at all. Hmm. Via Vincencio has a unique narration style. She's mixing memoir with journalism and personal stories and reflection and broader commentary on society, and she does all of that so well. There are beautiful, heartbreaking, stunning passages that I think blow Fitzgerald's writing out of the water. She has some of these really gorgeous examples of prose, but they're not flowery necessarily. I just think that her writing is incredible. I think that she has a role that's a little bit like Nick. I'm not saying she's like Nick the character, but she's part of the world that she's writing about and she gets personally involved but she's also observing and preserving the stories of undocumented immigrants while she herself is a dreamer and has a slightly different status than they do. In the book, she actively combats the myth of the model minority. She argues for the humanity of every individual and compassionate treatment simply because they are human. I just don't feel like I can say anything else to do this book justice. It's incredible. It's going to be on my list of favorites for the year. We'll add some links to Stellar Reviews, Stellar Own Voices Reviews in the show notes. I just really hope that everyone picks this up. 
And I think that you mentioned to me that you thought the chapter on 9-11 specifically because of its New York setting would pair really well with Gatsby or do well to replace Gatsby even Mm -hmm. if you're going to pull multiple short texts together for an American dream unit in 11th or 12th grade English. Totally. Yeah, I, I love this book and you're so right about her writing. It's like simultaneously very blunt and poetic just visceral maybe is a better word than poetic Mm -hmm. i love this book so much all right what is your last pairing so i tend to always do like one that's a little bit more out there (laughs) this is my more out there pairing it's severance by ling ma and i think it hits many of the same themes as Gatsby, it's like this indictment of consumer culture and the way capitalism turns people into cogs in this unstoppable machine, which like you don't have to think that to read this book, but the book is suggesting that in a really interesting way. So I'll also state up front, this is a pandemic book. I actually read this with my book club at the beginning of of the pandemic. I think we read it in March or April. And the illness that Ling Ma describes is so different from COVID and the symptoms and and all of that, that I didn't have trouble with it. But but we're much farther into COVID now. We've seen the much more, we've seen devastating effects of it. And so it might not this book, Severance, might not be something that people are ready to pick up right now, and that's totally, totally understandable. I do think it's a fantastic book, which is why I'm still recommending it, even though we're in the midst of this season. So the book is about Candace Chen, and she's a young woman also living in New York City, and she wants to be an artist. She is an artist, and she wants that to be her her life, but at the moment, she works at a publishing house that publishes novelty Bibles. And this, like The Great Gatsby, is rife with symbolism. And I thought that the use of these novelty Bibles was such a smart way that Ling Ma went about critiquing consumer culture. So, you know, the company is concerned with how you get people to keep buying new Bibles. Like nobody needs a brand new Bible every year, but through clever packaging and marketing, maybe you can convince people that they need this new shiny Bible. So just, I mean, a fascinating symbol that she explores there. And Candace is working in this unsatisfying job, but she's very successful at it. So she stays around. She has this boyfriend at the beginning of the novel that it's kind of, they're kind of at the stage where it's, They need to commit or move on, and so she's navigating that. And then this illness hits New York City, and the illness, they call it the Shen fever. It originated in China, and it quickly spreads throughout the city. They call the illness the fever, or if you're sick, they call it being fevered, and it basically turns people into shells of themselves, is what I will say of this. I mean... I don't want to say exactly what the fever does because I think of that as a spoiler. It might say on the back cover, but I thought it was interesting to kind of see that unfold as the book goes on. So that's that's all I'll say about that. But the book 
does a great job in terms of how it tells this story. It's told in two timelines. The first is the fever hitting New York City and Candace's life leading up to that and and that moment. And then it jumps ahead a few months when much of the world is fevered and Candace has met up with kind of this band of people who have managed to avoid the illness so far and they're kind of on the run trying to find safety. That back and forth is fascinating. And there's also a subplot about a photographer called New York ghost who posts pictures on social media of the empty city. And just the descriptions of the city kind of reminded me a lot of the great Gatsby, but it also like hit close to home. Like I I remember those pictures of empty New York when COVID first hit. So to me, this is a great pairing for Gatsby because of the way it explores that like consumer culture and what are we really striving for and at what cost how much of our humanity do we sacrifice to continue running faster you know or you know beating on against the current being born ceaselessly back so I also think that this would be a really interesting book to bring into the classroom one day not when we're in the middle of a pandemic and I would be very curious if any teachers have done that with any success. So that is Severance by Ling Ma. I enjoy when you offer an out there pick. (laughs) I find it fun to find connections and kind of out there picks, but I will be curious if other readers see those same connections as, as I do. What is your final pairing, Chelsea? I wanted to offer up something for adult readers and also for teens who do want that jazzy, page-turning, glitzy, glamorous New York read. And I thought of The Diviners by Libba Bray. So this is jazzy and it's a little bit noir-ish. And I think something about Gatsby that I actually like is that it does have that film noir feel where you get this narrator who's telling the story and it's dark and gritty and it just kind of feels that mystery noir flavor without really necessarily being a mystery. And I think that The Diviners is kind of noir-ish. There's also some commentary on The American Dream, but this series, The Diviners is the first, is a young adult supernatural mystery and fantasy series. It is about Evie O'Neill, who gets sent to her uncle's house in New York City, and she's completely swept up in the jazz age. She wants to be a flapper. She wants to be famous. She kind of reminds me of the protagonist in City of Girls a little bit, and things get more serious when her uncle gets called to investigate a crime scene that has these occult symbols left behind by the murderer. Her uncle owns this museum about the occult and this museum is like not doing very well. There's this, there's this whole supernatural element there and Evie herself is psychic And so she realizes that she could use her powers to help catch the murderer, but it ends up being far deeper than that. The 
supernatural elements and the occult symbols end up being sort of tied to the history of America in a really unique way in this book. There's a unique cast of characters. There's snappy dialogue that I think we associate more with the 1920s time period and flapper culture. But I think that this is a great one to recommend for those kids who do come into the classroom and are excited to read Gatsby and then get sort of let down when they when they miss out on the experience that they thought. I also just think that this is a great book to read in the fall. It's spooky. It's, I mean, I remember being legit scared while reading this book. And I think that the books get progressively a little bit more terrifying as you go through the series. I haven't finished the series at all, but it's been a long time since I've read it. I hope that it holds up just as well. That is The Diviners by Libba Bray. Everyone needs a spooky series to put on their TBR for the fall. So I love that pick. I think so. And I can hear people shouting at their podcast apps, what about rules of civility? Because I think (laughs) that one is on every Gatsby pairing list, but I think it pairs much better with a different classic. So we will get to it someday. Okay. I love that. Little, little tease. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Chelsea. Well, do you want to end our episode with a quick pick of the week? Sure. This is a book that is on my to-be-read list, and it is set in the 1920s. It is a classic, but it is by Edith Wharton, and I love Edith Wharton, so I have high hopes for this one. This is The Glimpses of the Moon, and it is about a couple, Nick Lansing and Susie Branch, and they have rich friends, but they don't have any money themselves, so they decide they'll get married and spend a year basically staying with their wealthy friends, honeymooning in their mansions, and living it up, and then if they fall in love with someone else who could advance them socially, who could offer them a more comfortable lifestyle and more money, then they'll divorce and go their separate ways. And then it sort of becomes a comedy as they go and, you know, get married and navigate all of these house parties and um, navigate class and their relationship. And I am really excited to read this one. I was kind of hoping to read it before we got to this episode because I thought it might be a good pairing, but maybe it's a classic that we'll get to someday and I'm really excited. So again, that is The Glimpses of the Moon by Edith Wharton. Okay, well that sounds so fun. I can't believe I didn't know that book exists. And my pick of the week is exactly the same. It's a book for my TBR that I wanted to read before <laughs> we recorded and didn't. And so I'll just throw it in here as a pick of the week. So this is Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. And I literally know nothing about Jaber Crow. I've never read Wendell Berry, but on episode 245 of What Should I Read Next? Anne Bogle has Kendra Adachi on, and it's one of Kendra's three books that she loves. She talks about Jaber Crow, and she's kind of describing it, and and Anne is like, can I give you a sexier description of Jaber Crow? (laughs) And Kendra was like, of course, sell it to me, and and Anne described it as the opposite of The Great Gatsby. 
So about, yeah, so about a man who like, you know, instead of going through these illicit means and trying to build all of this wealth for himself and making it in this world that he wasn't born into, moves to a small town, becomes kind of enmeshed in the town. And it's about like the quiet moments of his life and reflecting on like the choices he could have made. He took you know, the opposite path as Jay Gatsby. And I think that sounds so interesting. I mean, I know Wendell Berry is one of those authors that people love or hate. Like, if you love those quiet books, he's for you. I do tend to like those books, but I'm also really, you know, Anne's description sold me. (laughs) And I am really excited to pick up Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. I'm excited to pick it up now, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, talk about a great tagline for a book. (laughs) Well, listeners, we really can't wait to hear all about your experiences with The Great Gatsby and perhaps... This is the first... Is this the first book that we have, like, really dragged on the podcast? (laughs) Like, where we really didn't like it? I feel like we might get a little flack. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I like, I feel the need to say one more time, like, I love teaching this book. I think like this, there's so much to talk about with this book. But yeah, I, I, it's not one I enjoy. And maybe I'm just feeling a little nervous because it is the first one we've dragged on. (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll try and not be nervous. And I will say, I'm so glad that we talked about it. I had so much fun discussing it, but I have no desire to ever read it again in my life. (laughs) That's fair. I'm I'm in that camp. I didn't read it for our recording. It's one of those I can talk about in my sleep, like I said, and I basically did today. And it was so fun. (laughs) Readers, we hope you enjoyed revisiting 1920s New York with us today. We'd love for you to read along with us as we pick up The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nevo. For announcements and important updates from us, subscribe to novelpairings.substack.com and follow Novel Pairings Pod on Instagram. If you'd like to join us for live online events, bonus episodes, and book talk, join our group of nerdy readers at patreon.com slash novelpairings. And readers, did you know that you can leave a rating on Spotify now? If you are a Spotify podcast listener, please take a few seconds to click that five-star review for us next time you open your app. Or if you are listening to music on Spotify, you can just pop over to Novel Pairings and leave us a little rating there as well. You all have left us some really kind reviews over on Apple Podcasts lately, and we truly appreciate that support. Those fresh words boost Novel Pairings in the Apple Podcast algorithm, and they help new listeners find our show. Since you've left us a review, or you've been meaning to for some time now, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts as well. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we'll be back to discuss The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nebo. Until then, we declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.